Thanks for leading us. It's great to hear you guys sing. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And that thought maybe leads us into our final lesson, our final time together on biblical stewardship principles. Uh, remember last time we talked about we are stewards and how we are stewards that God is the owner of everything and we are to care for and manage what he has given to us. Remember Randy Alcorn defined a, a steward for us like this. He said, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So again, we are entrusted with what belongs to God, his wealth, his property, his world, whatever he's given us, whatever our skills and resources and time and opportunities, all that he has given us, we are responsible to manage it in his best interest. And so everything belongs to God. Our job is to manage what he's entrusted. Again, our resources, our skills, our abilities, our time. And really we talked about too, our whole life belongs to God. As believers, we've been kind of double purchased. God first owns everything. And then second, he bought us when he died for us on the cross. And so we belong to him and everything that we have belongs to him. And from that kind of principle of stewardship, then we moved into practical application. And last time we talked about earning, how we are to make money. Um, so let's just kind of review just a tiny bit here tonight. What, what's the normal way that God's going to provide for our needs in this world? What's the normal way? I heard, I saw one person mouth the word work, and I, I think that's right. Um, so the normal way that God's going to take care of our needs is for us to work. And we actually create wealth by working and by producing. There's not a, a limited amount of wealth in the world. The, there's, there's really, an, in a sense, an unlimited amount of wealth. As we put time and energy into something, we produce value. And that value, of course, is valuable to other people. And they can work and create and produce to purchase those things. And so if we work hard and if we work well and we work frequently enough, we should be able to provide for ourselves, cover everything that we need, our food, our clothing, our shelter, everything that we need to survive. And then even beyond that, to produce wealth beyond that, that we can use then to bless others around us. And that's really all that I, you know, want to do is, is in the way of review. We talked about earning, we talked about working, and really everything that, that I would want to say about that, we talked about that last time. Tonight, we want to talk about the other practical aspects of our stewardship. So, um, what are some of the other ways, as we kind of get into this one, what are some of the other ways that we can acquire money besides working and earning it with our with our hands, with our, with the skills that we do. How else can we get money? Yeah, lottery. Johnny said we could win the lottery. I, what, I thought I heard something else. We could borrow. Good. Yeah. What else? How else can we get money? Steal. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. 
that was, that was your brother back there, hey? Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't actually think that you would say that, but somehow, yeah. That's, that's on my list, so that was one that I, I, I have theft on here, but that's good. So, borrowing, lottery, uh, what else, how else can we get money? Inheritance, yeah, good inheritance. Um, yeah, investing, which is, yeah, kind of not, not so much earning it as, as much as, um, using money that we have to make it grow in, in different ways. That's good. Um, the, the other one I had on here is insurance and kind of along with the lottery, other, other forms of gambling. Now, some of these are, are not proper God honoring ways to acquire money. But um, they are ways to acquire money. But really what I wanted to go to next is borrowing. So let me just say, uh, well, no, I'm not going to. I'll just, theft is wrong. Gambling is not a good stewardship, right? You're, you're, you're playing the odds. God didn't tell us to make money that way. There's some verses that talk about that. Sealing is not good. But investing or an inheritance or insurance or some other kind of way, gifts that people might give us, those are, those are legitimate ways of acquiring money as well. And, and we're not going to talk too much about those. But let's talk about borrowing a little bit. And this is a really important one. This is one that I want to spend a lot of time on. Uh, and the other things that we're going to talk about tonight are, are mostly have been so covered by the principles that we've talked about that we're not going to spend as much time on those. So, but we'll get to that later. Ken, uh, Ken go, you had a question? Would stocks be considered gambling? Uh, maybe some really high risk stocks could be kind of considered gambling. Although I think, um, you know, in, Various kinds of investments are, are okay and maybe a wise way to save money if when, and we will talk about saving a little tiny bit tonight. Um, but like, you know, investing in, in like legitimate businesses that are, that, that could potentially grow, I think would be a, a, a wise thing to do. And, and that's kind of tied to the stock market, although I'm definitely not. Um, a financial investor person, so I can't, I can't help you much beyond that. So what are we, let's talk about borrowing though. What are some ways that we can borrow money? What kinds of borrowing do we know about in the world? What do you typically think about when you borrow money? A bank loan, Kate. Uh, and, and what, what, what do you have a bank loan for? Or what could you have a bank loan for? Okay, mortgage. Yeah, that's a good one. That's kind of a, a, a critical one, an important one. Maybe the, the primary one that, that would exist out there. Um, a mortgage. What other kinds of loans are there? Vehicle. A vehicle loan. Yeah, good. I think that, you know, what, any other kind of loans that you guys, that you think about, Micah? A credit card loan, good. Okay, that's another kind of way to borrow money, credit cards. Um, how else do you borrow money? Or could you? I'm not saying you, you guys are out there borrowing a bunch of money. A 
Yeah, a line of credit, which is which is another kind of a, a just a different kind of a bank loan that versus a car or a mortgage. Um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes uh, anyone ever borrow twenty dollars from their mom? Yeah, so there's that's a kind of a loan you can borrow from your family or friends or whatever. Um, our church was looking to borrow money from Grace Life Church because they had some money in their bank account that we thought we could maybe use to buy some land or whatever. And so that's a, that's a type of loan, loaning money from, um, from friends. Some of our friends from Grace Life are here today. So I'm sure you've already met them if, you know, over dinner or whatever, Peter and Christelle and their family. But okay, those are types of loans. But whatever the method, <clears throat> borrowing or, or credit involves allowing me to have right now what I want and that will be paid back later. So it lets me, if I borrow something, it, it lets me have now what I want so that, and, and then with a promise that I'm going to pay that amount later. And the lender gives me value and that's usually, we think of it in terms of money, but the lender gives me some kind of value, typically money, and they give that to me now based on the promise, the borrower's promise, to pay that back later. So borrowing usually involves a promise to pay back the full amount plus interest. And interest is then the cost of borrowing money. Okay, so I'm going to borrow some money. I'm going to buy something now that I can't afford right now. I don't have the money to buy that now. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that money, but I'm going to pay it back, and then I'm going to pay it back at interest. So here's how Randy Alcorn, we've been kind of following his book. Here's how he describes this. <clears throat> he says, credit is a grant to pay later for what's received now. Interest is the fee that the creditor receives and the debtor pays for his grant. Whenever a person goes into debt, he obtains money he hasn't earned. In exchange for the money or possessions he presently receives, he mortgages his future time, energies, and assets. Sorry, I'm supposed to read. Oh, here we go. Okay, so um, let me let me just continue on. He says, quote, 100 years ago, Debt was regarded as an earned privilege for the few. Now it's seen as an inalienable right for all. Borrowing has become an integral part of our lives. Why do I receive mailings nearly every week telling me that $5,000 or $10,000 or $20,000 has already been approved for me and to receive it, I need only send in the enclosed agreement? Why do banks and credit companies repeatedly beg me to borrow from them? listing dozens of ways I could use the money. Why are people so anxious to lend me money? The answer is simple. They want me to borrow because they will profit greatly from my debt. So that's that's kind of Randy Alcorn just explaining how debt works and credit works. So that's kind of what it means to borrow. Let's go to what the scriptures say about borrowing money and being in debt. And let's start in Proverbs chapter 6. So go ahead, open up to the book of Proverbs. Just going to read a few Proverbs here about this. 
Proverbs 6, we'll look first here at verses 1 to 5. Proverbs 6, starting at verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And these are strong words, a strong warning against putting up security for your neighbor. So the idea here is that that you've kind of borrowed something from your neighbor and you you give him something that's a promise that you're going to pay that back. So in other words, you've promised to pay back something that you've borrowed and so you've given something, some kind of a pledge, some kind of a security to your neighbor and the the psalmist here warns us to as quick as possible get out of that situation because we owe this neighbor and and it's almost like we're caught in a snare. And so he says, save yourself just like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Let's go now to uh, Proverbs 17. And we're just kind of considering what does scripture say about, about debt. So Proverbs 17 verse 18. Again, in the, the form of, of a pledge and security, it says, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. So that's another strong way of saying it. One who lacks sense does this. Look at uh, Proverbs now 22, and there's a couple of verses in Proverbs 22. The first one is Proverbs 22, 7. It says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The one who borrows money is the slave of the one who lends him money because now you owe this person back. You have to pay this person back what you've borrowed. And then look at Proverbs 22, 26 and 27. It says, Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts, If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? And so it's kind of a question that's meant to just sit with us for a little bit. If we give up security, if we pledge to pay something back and we can't pay that debt back, then even our bed, like like whatever you have, can be taken from you because you owe the person or the company or whatever that you have borrowed from. And so um, that's, you know, Scripture is very, very clear about the danger of borrowing money. So let me just read again from, um, from Randy Alcorn here. He says, Without a firm conviction against going into debt, people will inevitably find the the need, he puts it in quotation marks, people will inevitably find the need to borrow. Those with convictions against borrowing will always find ways to avoid it. In other words, they'll choose to spend less money. The more you're inclined to go into debt, the more probable it is that you shouldn't. That's really important. The more inclined you are to go into debt, the more probable it is that you shouldn't. 
The basic question is this, is the money I will be obligated to repay and the bondage it will create worth the value I'll receive by getting the money or possessions now? So again, when we borrow money, we're, we're, we're trying to get now something that we can't yet afford. And so we're going to borrow money so that we can get it now because, because for whatever reason we want it now. And so the, Randy asked us to ask, is it, is it so important that I'm going to get it now? Is it going to be worth the bondage? And even if we take it the scripturally, the, the slavery that it's going to be, because now we have this obligation to pay somebody back for what we maybe in, in the first place didn't need. And so borrowing puts us in debt, which makes us bound to the lender. And if that debt becomes more than we can pay, the lender can come after us in, in various ways to get what we owe them. And so Romans 13 verse 8 says this, and you, you don't really need to turn there. It just says, owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So owe no one anything. Now, some have understood Romans 13, 8 to even, even say like, that we should never go into debt. It's like an outright, um, forbidding of all debt. Now, I don't, I don't take Romans 13, 8 that way. I think it's a, a general principle and a guideline, and it's not necessarily in that context talking about just finances. It's actually talking about love and, um, I'm not going to go into the whole context of Romans 13 here just off the top of my head, but Romans 13.8, I think as a principle, Paul's not necessarily talking about finances, but just as a general principle, we shouldn't owe anyone anything. We shouldn't be um, indebted to anyone except that we owe everyone the love of Christ that we're to show. And so I think it's a, it's not an absolute command, but, but even based on those verses that we read in Proverbs, I think we can see the danger of debt. And so when we think about this danger of debt and this, this obligation that we have to pay back whoever we owe, when, when would you say that debt would be particularly dangerous? What are times when debt is, is more dangerous than other times? Anyone have any thoughts on that? When you don't have work? Okay, yeah. Be, and, and why would that be? And this could be for anyone. Why would it be more dangerous to go in debt when you don't have work? Then you won't get more money and then you'll always owe because you can't, yeah, you can't pay it back. Then, yeah, then someone can come and take whatever they want to pay the debt. Or maybe not even just whatever they want, but... Um, they could take certain things that we've given in a pledge, right? They can, they can come after us and, and take, like Proverbs said there, take the bed out from under us. And so we don't, we don't want that. Um, <clears throat> when else would, would, um, would debt be, or, uh, where's this question here? My pages are in the wrong order. Um, when else would debt be particularly dangerous? When you're buying things you don't really need, okay? Yeah. And how would that be more dangerous? Uh, 
additional burden on your life for things that you do need. Okay, so yeah, it puts an additional burden on your life for things that you do need when you're in debt for maybe a bunch of things that you don't need. Um, what other kinds of debt? Let, let's think about kinds of debt that we talked about. Um, what, what, el- what, other ki- what kinds of debt are maybe more dangerous than other kinds of debt? Okay, credit card debt. Why, and why would you say that? All right, guys, I think we're going to start here again. Okay, so I think we just talked about, we just brought up credit card debt. That would be a particularly dangerous type of debt. Before we talk about credit card debt, because I, I do want to talk about that, let me just mention another another time when when debt is is more dangerous than other times and that would be when when the resale value of something is less than the amount owed so you know for example if let's say i i went out how like how much who knows like how much is a new a nice new truck I don't, what's a nice truck kevin what's a nice truck 80, okay, 80,000 minutes. Okay, I was just going to get a nice truck and then tell me how much that is. But that, a, a, a nice truck, about $80,000. So let's say I buy a brand new truck today and I borrow all $80,000. I don't even know if I would be allowed to do that. But let's just say for, for whatever reason, I borrow $80,000 at a typical bank loan, which I don't know what that would be right now, 5 or 6% interest or whatever. Um, but the second I drive that car off the lot... That $80,000 car, maybe I could sell it now for $70,000, like it just went down in value. And so now if I sell that car, I probably owe more than what I would get when I sold that car. And so now I'm, I'm in further debt and now I have to come up with $10,000 that I don't even have. Does that make sense? And so now I'd have to borrow money for nothing. So, so that kind of debt is, is, a worse kind of debt than maybe the debt we would think about on a house if if um, if I could sell the house for more than the amount I borrowed. Are you guys following how that works? Another example, maybe instead of a car or a vehicle, which which really depreciates immediately when I buy a brand new one. I'm not saying it it's, it'd be bad to buy a brand new car, but it'd be bad to have that level of debt on a car that when I sold that car, I wouldn't even get my money back out of it because now I have this debt for nothing when I sell, when I get rid of the car. But another thing, like if I, if I borrowed money, now maybe this would have to happen at times, but if I borrow money for food, well, the, the minute I eat that food, um, I can't resell that food. And so now that whatever I borrowed to buy food, that's just gone. Or same thing with like things like clothing or a computer or just kind of like day to day things. Um, you can't, there's, there's really no resale value in those things. And so if I'm borrowing to buy things like that, then I can, I can never get out of my debt just by selling the things. And that's a more dangerous kind of debt. Randy Alcorn says this. He says, quote, if we buy an asset that can definitely be re- resold at or above its original cost, we can at least get out of the debt by surrendering the asset. End quote. And I think that's, that's a, a safer kind of debt. And so an example maybe of, of a safer kind of debt would be if there was some kind of a great deal at an auction and, and you were going to buy something that was worth 
much more than you paid. And as long as that thing would be sellable, as long as it could be sold again, um, then that would be a, a safer kind of debt. Um, now, of course, you could buy a bunch of stuff at the auction that you'd never be able to sell, and that's not going to be a safe kind of debt as well. Or another example of a safer kind of debt would be like a house. So when I buy a house, typically I, I'm putting a, a, a big amount as a down payment. And so I'm going to have this debt, but I'm going to have this down payment cushion so that if I ever have to get out of this debt, Lord willing, I'll be able to sell the house. And when I sell the house, there'll be more than what I owe so that I can now get myself out of debt and maybe even have some left over. So Jody and I, just for example, we, we bought that house in Devon that we owned and then we moved here and we finally had to sell that house and we sold that house and we really didn't make any money on it. Um, but because we had a, a decent enough down payment, even though we, we really kind of came out even, I was able to pay the whole debt off and then, and then kind of take whatever was left of that down payment. And, and so my debt wasn't bigger than the sale of the house. Because if we would have been in big trouble, if we had sold that house and then I owed more on the house than what, than what the house, than, um, than what I got for the house, then I would have to come up with extra money to pay down that debt. And then we would have been in big trouble. So, um, that's an example of kind of dangerous or safer debt. Any questions about that? Any thoughts? If you have a question at any time, just put up your hand. So let's talk about um, credit card debt. One of the reasons credit card debt is especially dangerous is because we do use credit cards to buy just like everyday convenience things, like food and clothing and stuff that depreciates in value immediately and um, and we're not going to be able to sell that stuff to pay off our credit card debt in most cases. So that's one reason that it makes it more dangerous. Another reason is, that, like Phil said, credit cards are so um, convenient that we can often, I'm not saying everyone does this, but often we can spend money easier than if we paid cash. So Credit card companies know this. That's why they want you to have a credit card because they think you'll spend money easier than you would if you were giving away cash. And so they, they, they kind of count on you getting a bit of a debt raised up because it's just like, Oh, we'll just put it on the credit card. I don't even have to pay it till next month. And so you're borrowing money, but you don't really think about it as borrowing. When you go and make a car loan and you got to sign a piece of paper, now I'm borrowing money and it's kind of like a serious thing and you think about it. But when it's just like, doot, 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 tap it on that card. Um, anyways, credit card companies count on that. And so that's part of why they're particularly dangerous. But the main reason why credit cards are particularly dangerous kinds of debt is because the interest rates are so high. Interest rates on credit cards are somewhere between 15 and 20%. Uh, and maybe they even, some of them go higher. And so, and also it's just easier to go into debt with a credit card. So just kind of thinking about this and we're thinking about what does it mean to be a good steward of God's resources? If I have a credit card and I rack up $2,000 worth of um, shopping spree on there, let's say, and the interest rate is 19.5% per year, it's just kind of like that's just a typical credit card, 19.5%. Each month, a twelfth of that 19.5% gets increased to my balance. So 
Um, on, a, on a 19.5% credit card, every month I have to pay 1.6% of the, of the amount in interest to the credit card company. So again, I, let's just say I owe $2,000. Or let's say you owe $2,000 on your credit card. The minimum payment, when you get your bill back, there's going to be this little minimum payment. It's going to say all you got to pay is $75 this month. But the interest of that, of that 1.625%, which is a twelfth of 19.5%, the interest that goes on that month is going to be $32.50. So I got a $2,000 credit card bill and I'm going to, all I have to, if I only pay the minimum payment, then $32.50 of that goes to the credit card company and $42.50 goes to pay down the $2,000 debt. And so you pay $75, but the debt only goes down $42.50. And so the, the, you can just see how, how long it would take you to pay off, uh, a debt like that. And, um, and that's just assuming that you don't spend another $2,000 next month kind of racking up more credit card bills. So let's say you have a, a better, credit card with an 18% interest rate and you only have a $7,000 balance. And if you pay the minimum payment, if you just pay the minimum payment on that thing every month and you don't rack up any more debt, just that $7,000, your $7,000 credit card loan is going to end up costing you more than $20,000. That's the nature of credit card debt. It's going to cost you $20,000 to pay off that $7,000 if you just pay the minimum payment. And so when you think about it, sometimes maybe you think, well, I, this is just such a great deal, this, this item. It's half off. I'm going to charge that baby because it's half off and it'll be more expensive next week. I'm going to charge that baby. Well, um, if that thing, if you just, if you don't, if you're not able to pay off that debt, that thing that you bought at half price for $7,000, that thing now costs you $20,000. It is not half price anymore. It is more than double the price. And so that's kind of the nature of credit card debt. And so whenever you go into debt and there's this high interest, and especially if you can't afford to make the payments, it's just not wise stewardship. And so what happens often is we buy things that we can't really afford already by going into debt, credit card debt, and then we go further into debt because we can't really afford to make the payments on that debt, and so then it just escalates and escalates and escalates until it's like an iron chain around our feet and this debt is killing us, and... um, and, and really, all of the money that we're earning and working to, you know, to, to serve and honor the Lord ends up going um, to interest to pay off all of these debts that we have. And so the encouragement that I guess comes out of here is that we should avoid, avoid debt. It's, debt is really bad stewardship. And, and if you have a credit card and like Jody and I have a credit card and we use it every month and it's, and that's nothing wrong with that, but you just, you, you can't let it, you can't think that it's like free because you put it on this card. It's not free. It's a loan. And if you can't afford to pay that loan off at the end of the month, 
And, and, and I'm not talking about the minimum payments. I'm talking about making that whole payment so that it's, so that you don't, it doesn't cost you anything. Um, then you shouldn't have a credit card. And, and when we do have a credit card, we should only buy what we can afford. And, and so if you can't afford it now, biblically speaking, wisdom speaking, it would be better to not get it and save up for it and buy it when you can afford it. So let's talk about any, any questions about, about credit card, credit cards or, or, or debt? Does that, do you guys, is, or, can I get like a nod or something? Is anyone like, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, and, and if you ever get into that kind of a debt, like it is, it's a horrible thing to be in because you just, you can't afford it. And then boom. And then now you're making this interest payments and it's so, it just, it just like, snowballs and it builds up on you and and I wouldn't want any of you to be in that position. So avoid debt if you can. If you are in debt, we'll talk about how to get out of it in a minute. Um, But if you can't afford it now, then don't go into debt to get it unless you, unless you can afford to to make the payments. And like, don't forget to pay that bill. I, one time I forgot to pay my credit card bill and it cost me 20 bucks or something. Like it's just, it's a lot of interest on a small amount. Um, okay. So what about houses and mortgages? This is uh, an area of debt that is very acceptable in our culture and, um, and in our society. And I, I would say, I would see this as a debatable issue. Uh, I think there's kind of two choices. We got to live somewhere, right? We have to have shelter. We have to have a place to stay. So, we can buy a house or we can rent a house. Those are kind of the only two options. I guess there's such a thing as a lease or something. I don't know, but pretty much buying or renting. So let's talk about that a little bit. Renting is often seen as, as throwing away money. Anyone kind of hear that? I'm just throwing away money when I rent. Nobody, one person, two couple people. Okay. That's good. Okay. Renting is often seen that way. But another way that you could look at it is that when you rent, you get what you pay for. You're paying for a place to stay for the month and you get a place to stay for the month or however long you're going to stay in that place. And so you pay to have a place to live. Also, when you rent, you're, you're not going into debt, right? You just are monthly paying this person, whoever the landlord is. And so there's no debt. There's also, um, I wrote down in my notes, no responsibility. There's, there's, um, less responsibility for the house because the maintenance of that place that you're renting is not usually up to you when you rent a place. Um, but there's some responsibility. I look out at Alan there and he rents some apartments out, right? And so, um, you wouldn't want your renters to think there's no responsibility for the place. There is some responsibility. Uh, but it's different. And there's also with, with renting, there's no ties. Like you can typically, um, move at any time to a different place if you want. Um, also the, and one of the reasons why Jody and I love renting is because for us, there's no temptation to renovate the house and make it nicer when we rent because like we're just Jody and I, I like, I like nice things and, and, um, we would just want to fix things up and make it nicer. And we would have probably painted that house that we're in now a couple of times already by now, if it was up to us. So, um, there's, there's no temptation to renovate or less temptation to kind of spend money into the house. There's, there's less 
temptation to update or or just put money into the house. Um, and so that's kind of the the side of renting. Now let's talk about owning a house. So now you're, now we're talking about getting a mortgage and buying a house. And that's often seen, at least in our society, as a good investment. And it can be. Owning a house can be a really good investment. Um, but when you do take out debt to buy a house, you take out a mortgage, you, you do need to know that markets aren't always the way that they have been. And so markets crash. Sometimes houses become worth less than they were before. Uh, you know, in 2008, I think it was in the States, they were, they were bulldozing whole subdivisions because the prices of housing went so low and the banks were repossessing all these houses and then the market was flooded with houses and so they were just like, Let, let's bulldoze them. So people who bought this nice new house for whatever couple hundred thousand dollars, all of a sudden that house is worth a lot less than that and so it could happen. So I just, I want you to know that, that it, it could happen that the market could crash. And so when we think about buying a house as a good investment, it could be, but this is, this is important. God is sure and the housing market is not sure, right? So we want to trust in God, not the housing market. Also, interest rates can go up. And that happened to like some of the older people's parents or whatever. Like, so, uh, and maybe even some of you that are older than me, maybe it even happened to you, but I know that like Jody's parents remember when the interest rates went to 18% and they lost their farm and whatever. And so, um, you might be able to borrow money now for cheap, but it doesn't, there's no guarantee that it's going to stay cheap forever. So interest rates can go up, house prices can go down. Also, when you are in a mortgage and you've borrowed money, your money is tied up because typically a mortgage involves a down payment. That's what makes it safer so that you're not going to owe more than you, than you could pay when you sell the house. It's a safer type of a loan, but your money is tied up. And even though when you, when you borrow money on a mortgage, even though you are paying down the price of the house so that that house is becoming more and more your house and less and less the bank's house, don't think that you're not paying interest. Okay. So some people think renting is just throwing money away and owning is, is not throwing money away. Well, you are paying a huge amount of interest every month as well. So let's just say I bought a a $350,000 house and I had a $50,000 down payment. So I paid $50,000 down that I'd saved up and I have a $300 loan. And let's say that that's a 3% interest rate, which is maybe a little bit higher than it is right now, but that's what I calculated this at. And it's a 25-year loan for this house. So I'm going to borrow $300,000 for 25 years. And I'm going to pay then uh, $1,422.63 a month. So $1,422 according to like calculator.net or whatever this thing was that I found in the first Google search there. So calculator.net says that over that 25 years, I'm going to pay $126,000 uh, 780 in interest. So I'm going to pay a lot of money in interest over those years. But then on top of that, you're also going to have maintenance for that house and you're going to have to pay property taxes on that house. And so there's going to be extra costs. What, 
Now, if instead of that, now, so my, my $300,000 loan, my $350,000 house is now going to cost me like $475,000 um, because of this extra $100,000 interest that we're going to have over that 25 years. But instead of that, here's, a, here's kind of the other way that you could look at it. If you, if you instead rented the house, and let's say the cost was the same, you could invest that $50,000 down payment somewhere else, and there would be no interest payments that, that would go into any interest. And perhaps, maybe, in the, maybe you could save and buy a house cash in about 25 years. So it's going to take you quite a long time. I did a calculation on that, and I said, let's say I put that $50,000 in, um, and let's say I could make 6% return on that $50,000. And let's say I, I paid an extra $1,000 a year. So maybe instead of paying my property tax, I put an extra $1,000 a year into this investment. Over 25 years, that would be, that would become almost $200,000, um, of just interest. And so my $50,000 would become about, um, $270,000, still not enough to buy a house, but that's kind of just, there's, there's some, there's some things to think about there as far as renting versus buying. Um, you know, again, this, I think this is, I don't think that mortgage debt is a debt that we never should enter into, but I think we do need to think about it wisely and carefully. Um, it's not the only option. You could, it's possible, I think, even in today's society to eventually buy a place with cash if you, if you save up rightly. But we're free to choose, I think, on this issue. So the one thing that I do want to say, though, as we think about our stewardship as far as owning a house, don't be tempted to get a house beyond what you can afford. And I think that's really the issue. I think Randy Alcorn in this book here somewhere says that it's, we can, we almost have an unlimited justification in buying houses and vehicles. And we can just justify the biggest and the greatest. Well, don't, don't, don't get a house beyond what you can afford. And think about eternity in especially such a big purchase as a house. Don't think about vanity in your choice. Think about eternity. And by vanity, I mean like, just like looks and having the, the greatest place or whatever. Don't, don't think about that. Think about eternity. Think about serving others as well. Think about being an example with our resources and how to best steward God's resources. For some of us, that means we maybe should buy a, a, a less expensive house or live in a, a less expensive house, not as fancy of a, of a house as we could live in. Um, for others of us, maybe it means we, we have, we should have a bigger house so that we can host and have people over and stuff, but, but never get into a house that we can't afford and make wise decisions about why am I getting this house? Is it to look good or is it because I think it's a good stewardship of God's resources? And so now let's just talk very briefly here. Um, oh, it's eight o'clock already. Hey, if it, so let's just talk about very briefly. Let's just say that you have, um, unfortunately managed to rack up a, a big amount of credit card debt. And let's say it's on different credit cards. Um, and, and you have maybe some other loans as well. So what do I do now? I'm, I'm, I'm the slave to the lender. Uh, what do I do? And, and what I would say here is what you want to do is if you can 
see about consolidating all of those debts in one nice loan at a, at a cheap interest rate. Okay. So often you can get a loan to pay back your credit cards. And, and, and I think that'd be the best way to do. But if you can't do that, then, then pay off the worst and the smallest debt first. So pay off the, the most expensive credit card first. Maybe it's the smallest uh, amount as well on that credit card. Pay that off. And then once you've got that one paid off and make the minimum payments on all the other ones. Okay. Then once you've got that paid off, then take that extra bit of money and, and, and pay off the next one and let that, I think, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dayton Howard in another book I have on stewardship. He says that he calls it the snowball effect. And so it's just, you continue to pay off the debts one by one. And as you pay off the one, then take the full amount that you were paying to that one and put it to the next one and get yourself out of debt as soon as possible, like a gazelle getting away from the hunter. And as you're doing that, don't waste money. Um, by buying other things that you don't need. That's really probably the greatest difficulty in that whole thing is that we just, we're, we just think that we want things and so we buy them. Don't do that. Get yourself out of debt. Um, but don't waste God's money on unnecessary interest because that's bad stewardship. Any questions about, about borrowing then? Okay, well, um, you can ask me privately questions too if anyone has anything like that. I'm sure that might be <laughs> more comfortable. Let's say, Pastor Mike, I have $20,000 in credit card debt and seven credit cards. What do I do? Uh, maybe, yeah, we can talk about that some other time. So, okay, what remains then in our study is, is three things that we can do with the money that we have. And, and so we, let's say we've earned money. We're not in debt. We, we don't have anything to worry about borrowing. Um, I have some money in my bank account. Let's say it was payday last week. I can do three things with my money. I can give that money away. I can spend that money or I can save that money. And again, I'm not going to say a whole lot about giving, spending and saving in this series. Because I think the principles that we've covered in, in the first four lectures on this has really covered a lot of this. But let's start with talking about giving because I think that's where we should start as well in our monthly budget. And the first thing that we should do with the money that we get is that we should give some back to the Lord as an act of worship. Now, what's going to happen if we don't give or if we don't plan to give first? What? Anyone have a budget and know what's ha- what happens if you don't give first or plan to give? You use it. That's right. So kind of by default, at least for most of us, we just spend as much as there is in there and we just buy whatever we buy. And so the the safest way to budget is to give it first and save first and then spend what's left because typically at least for most people we will spend it all or worse we'll spend more than all and then we're going back into borrowing and debt again so um, giving should really be our first priority so let's talk a little bit about giving Um, 
Now, I, again, I've already talked a lot about giving in this series. We're, we're, we're giving, we should be giving to support the work of the Great Commission. That's how we invest in eternity, right? We, um, that's that, um, that quote by, oh boy, I should have wrote it in my notes. So you guys can tell me the name because my mind is blanking, but he says, he is no fool. Jim Elliott, thank you. Jim Elliott's name was just, so he is no fool who, who gives what he, what he cannot keep to, to gain what he cannot lose. Okay, thank you. So, um, he is no fool. So that's, we're, Jesus told us to lay up treasures in heaven. And so we're to give of what we have on the earth and we'll be rewarded for what we do with that money when we get to heaven. And so we can give up the things that we cannot keep, the things of this world that are, are perishing and passing away. And if we invest it in eternity, that's really the only safe investment in this world. You know, investment counselors are going to tell you, well, you can, you know, over time, you're guaranteed you're going to get at least 6% or 7% or 10% return. Well, there is no guarantee except for when we give things to the Lord. There's a guarantee that we'll be repaid a hundredfold. But I want to introduce you as we think about giving. I want to introduce you to the Macedonians. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. These Macedonians are a great example to us in sacrificial giving. And uh, they're such a great example that Paul wanted the Corinthians to know about the Macedonians' generosity. And so 2 Corinthians, really all of chapter 8 and 9 speak about this whole thing. But I'm just going to read a a few portions here. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus as he had, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what's going on here is the Macedonians and really Paul, they're, they're gathering money for this, the, the affliction that's happening in Jerusalem. So the, the saints in Jerusalem are being persecuted. They, um, they need some, uh, extra help. They're, they're, they're impoverished there. And so the, the Paul and his companions are going to give this great, um, gift of resources to the church in Jerusalem. Remember, the gospel has come from the church in Jerusalem to all these people in Macedonia and Corinth and Greece and and really that whole area. And so now these people who have benefited from the gospel coming, they want to give back to these saints in Jerusalem who are really in dire need because of the persecution. And the Macedonians, 
had this amazing grace of God that was, that was given to them. Paul recognizes what they were doing as God's grace in their lives. And in the midst of their own affliction and their own extreme poverty, the joy of their salvation, it would seem, just like welled up within them that even though they were um, poor, they were very generous in their giving, and they actually begged for the, um, the opportunity to participate in this gift. And Paul says they didn't just do that, but they also gave themselves first to the Lord. So the Macedonians committed themselves to the Lord, and then out of that commitment to the Lord, they gave to Paul so that he could meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And then Paul wants the Corinthians, who had already promised to give a gift towards that, he wants them to excel in this grace of giving as well. And so that's kind of the situation that's happening. Now look at chapter 9, and let me just start reading at verse 1. He says, now it is superfluous, like unnecessary, for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. So the the people of Corinth were a... something that Paul used to kind of stir up the Macedonians. And now Paul's using the Macedonians giving to stir up the giving of the people in Corinthians or the people in Corinth. So he says, I know your readiness, which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Verse 6, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, and not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is, over, is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, And then he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, there's just so much in here about about giving that's, I think, really, really helpful. Um, And it's, it's almost 
there's just so much that I, let, let me just kind of leave it for now. But I just, I wanted you to be aware of what that text says. Now, I want you to just go back here one to one other place and look at one other thing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll start reading at verse 1. Paul says here, now concerning the collection for the saints, and this is that same collection that he was talking about in 2 Corinthians. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will they will accompany me. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So this describes kind of a weekly correct uh, collection. And remember, in those days, pretty much everyone got paid every week. And so you got paid every week. Paul wants you to put some aside as, as the Lord prospered you. And notice he says in verse 2, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And so kind of according to our income, Paul says we, we should give as well according to our income. Each one of us should give so that there, there doesn't have to be a big collection when Paul came. Now this giving here that Paul's describing would have been giving over and above their regular um, weekly giving that would be to support their own local church. This is kind of a special fundraiser to help the saints in Jerusalem. But there's a lot that we can um, glean from this. And I, I want to just kind of go through what Randy Alcorn says about this in his book. And I, I think this is helpful here. So let's, let's look at, he has 11 principles for giving. And I'll just kind of hit some highlights as he, as he does. The first thing that, that Randy Alcorn talks about here when he talks about kind of new covenant giving, this grace giving that that is supposed to kind of mark each believer is that it's something that each Christian should do. And so he calls it the first one. He just says that we should give. And he highlights in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, which we also saw in 1 Corinthians 16, but 2 Corinthians again, 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. But it's kind of funny. Paul says, like, we shouldn't give reluctantly or under compulsion. But he also says each one should give. Each one, even the ESV translates it there, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So I guess you could say, well, maybe he decided to give nothing. But it seems like Paul wants each of us to give. Secondly, he says, uh, Randy Alcorn says, we should give generously. And we see that in the grace of God in the Macedonians. They are just begging, even though they have really nothing, they are just begging to give. And that really should be our attitude as well, because we want to invest in eternal things, right? If the, if the church is an important thing to us and spiritual life is a, a, a value to us, then it's going to be reflected in our giving and we're going to be people who give generously. 
Now, I'm going to come back and talk about tithing, but Randy Alcorn says, he says, if you've never tithed, start there. And then he says, begin to stretch your generosity. Give generously. Thirdly, he says, give regularly. And he talks about how every week, just like the saints in Jerusalem did, but really, I, I would say every payday, we should be thinking about giving um, and and actually doing it. Um, Randy Alcorn says also as well, he says, unless people give systematically, they rarely give substantially. They may give a few hundred or a few thousand dollars a couple of times a year, and they think of themselves as big givers. He also talks about this, this one guy, you know, the, the, you know, at that, that one time a year you get your tax information back and it kind of shows how much you gave. And one, he t- tells the story of one guy who said, well, um, there must be some mistake. My, my, my giving's not in there. Like, where's, you know, I didn't get a, a tax receipt. And they, they went back and looked and they said, oh, well, uh, sir, you never gave anything this year. And he was like, oh, I'm sure I, I'm sure I did because we, we tend to think that we did give, um, more regularly than we do unless we kind of purpose to do it systematically and regularly. So give regularly. Fourth, give deliberately. Um, I don't know if there's much I want to say about that. Um, but give deliberately, give consciously. Um, Saturday night should be almost a time where we think about how the Lord has prospered us in the, in the week or the month. You know, like we, we get paid once a month, so we would do that typically once a month. Think about how the Lord has prospered you and then decide to give based on that. Um, Randy Alcorn tells the story of this one couple that he asked to give some thoughts on giving, and here's what they said. They said, quote, Our life's purpose for giving is as follows. Help fulfill the Great Commission by giving 50% of our annual income to Christian causes that have the greatest leverage. And then this couple said, to do this, we must maximize our income, consult with people knowledgeable about ministry, and select the best organizations to support. They say, we've averaged giving 33% for the last 15 years, and in the most recent two years, we have moved to 50% of our gross income. And I think it's just, you know, there, there's models throughout this book of people who give generously and they, they do it deliberately by aiming to give, by, by focusing, how can I best lay up treasures in heaven? Next, Randy Alcorn talks about give, give voluntarily. Um, God loves a cheerful giver. Each one should give what he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so we should give um, cheerfully, voluntarily of our own free will, not because we feel under compulsion. And I hope that none of what we're doing here makes you feel any compulsion, but I hope it motivates you to lay up treasures in heaven. Next is number six, give sacrificially. And again, he reminds us of the Macedonians and how they were in this severe trial, but they had overflowing joy, extreme poverty, and rich generosity. And all of that fits together in one verse. Um, and they gave sacrificially. Paul says they gave beyond their means. That's in 2 Corinthians 8.3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And so the Corinthians or the Macedonians gave sacrificially. 
kind of even beyond they, what they could. And I, I think that's a good mark for us that our giving should almost be something that's sacrificial. Remember David, when he gave to the, the temple, he said that the guy offered him, I'll give you this land for free. And David said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to give anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. And so our giving should almost stretch us beyond what we're able to do. That's what sacrificial giving is all about. Oh, here it is right here, right next thing in the book. Second Samuel 24, 24, David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Uh, next, uh, give excellently. And this is from Second Corinthians 8, 7. Paul says to the Corinthians, but as you excel in everything, he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And so he wants the Corinthians to excel in giving in the same way that they excel in every other area of their lives. So give excellently, uh, give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, it should be a joy, like really giving should be a great joy in our life. Um, I remember when I decided that I, I was going to become a pastor, I remember one of the things, I don't know if Jody would remember this, but one of the things that kind of like was a, almost like a hindrance in the decision was just the knowledge that I probably wouldn't make as much and I wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to give in the way that we used to be able to give. Now the Lord's blessed us in that and, 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 um, I don't know that that's quite the same as it, as I thought it would be, um, but, Regardless, we should, like, giving should be a, a joy and, um, and not a burden to us. It should be a joy to know and, and be able to support ministries that are glorifying God. And, and I think when you look at 2 Corinthians 9 and that whole context there, Paul talks about how when, when you give, the, the giving that you do is going to kind of create thanksgiving back to God for the, the benefit of that gift. And the, this whole thing is going to kind of like propel everyone so that there's more and more thanksgiving and glory to God in the whole thing. And so um, when we give, it's it's creating, it's almost like it's it's like magnifying God's glory and and more and more is happening for the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, and God is going to be more glorified through that. And so it should be really a great joy to us to, to see and, and be a part of serving the Lord in our giving. Uh, the ninth one that Randy Alcorn says is give worshipfully. Uh, giving is part of our worship. Every bit as much as praying or singing a hymn, our, our financial giving is part of our act of worship. And that's why, like I said this morning, that most churches have a, an offering during the worship service because it's part of our worship. Now, we're not doing that for practical reasons, but still, our giving is a part of our worship as we give back to God what he's given to us. It's, uh, it's our worship. It glorifies God. Uh, that was nine. Ten is give proportionately. Paul talks about giving according to our income. Um, if we make more money, then we should, we should give more. Uh, and in fact, that should all, we, we uh, Randy Alcorn talks a lot in this book, and I think it's really helpful about, about almost like working and, and striving to give more so that we're giving greater and greater percentages of our income. You know, typically what happens is, um, 
you know, let's say I made, uh, let's say I made $50,000 last year. Well, next year, let's say I make $55,000. Well, now I just spend $5,000 more and my giving stays the same. Randy Alcorn says, why not just live on that amount and just continue to increase your giving more and more and more? And so he talks about people that aim to give 20, 30, 40, even up to 90% of their income to the Lord's work. Um, so give proportionately to our wealth. You know, sometimes we say, well, if I made more, then I would give more. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. If we, anyways, I'm not going to, I'm running, running out of time here. Uh, 12 or 11 is give quietly. Jesus talks about not letting our, um, let, not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so there's a place for just kind of giving quietly, not making a big scene about it, um, not going to these huge banquets where, where you know, it's shown how much you give or whatever, but just giving quietly to the Lord, knowing that he will reward us for what we give. I think I should end there and we should do one more time. Hey, who is that? I think it's 8.30. I think I, we better just do that. I've, I'm, I'm kind of notorious for doing that. Uh, but I think we should end. It's 8.30, so I think let's end there. Next time, we'll talk. I want to talk about tithing, and I think I, I don't want to just kind of rush through that too fast. Um, so let's come back. We'll, we'll do one more of these. And... Um, I'll find someone to kind of replace you guys on that. So, and that'll be the last one for the year. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this uh, time together in your word tonight. Thank you for um, just challenging us on, on giving and borrowing. Uh, we pray that we would be good stewards of our resources and um, that you would help us to glorify you in that way. We pray that um, that you would help us to give to ministries that glorify you, build up your kingdom, and um, and propagate your truth in the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.